Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 51. Time doesn't always pass in the same rate in chaotic planes, especially if the local power in charge wills otherwise. Caden Kalian is otherwise occupied, fighting Zon Kuthon, but has still his local co-conspirators and his plans laid in advance. Pilar Pineda has been in Elysium longer than Hell thinks, not nearly long enough to get the full tour, but enough to be shown around a little, appropriately attired and appropriately treated, to see massive crystal waterfalls in which glass-like material flows slowly down from what look like leagues and leagues up, to sleep briefly but refreshingly in a warm cavern lit by glowing edible moss, to meet interesting people and be mistreated by them in interesting ways. Long enough to be told what Elysium believes about what hell really is, how hell really works, and have it sworn to her in the name of good and chaos that they're telling the truth to the best of their own knowledge. They're not lawful, yes, but it doesn't mean they're all liars all the time. There are beings with spell-like abilities here to rival great wizards, and one shows Pilar a glimpse of hell as it really is. To be clear, Pilar hasn't been here that long. This tour is being done in something of a rush. Keltham wakes, to light just beginning to filter in through the bedroom window. He is not used to sleeping through any more light than that, and, what with all the distractions, didn't even close the curtains before falling asleep, cuddling a chained-up Carissa. Oh, he can sleep on the same surface, and even in the same poorly designed bed, as someone else. Well, he can do that with Carissa. He doesn't particularly like the thought of doing it with anyone else that he currently knows. It's raining outside, moderately windy. It's not possible to see, underneath the clouds, if the sky is doing anything weird. Keltham starts to get the... Key, how is that a key? He didn't want to interrupt sexy times to ask Carissa this, last night. But you can literally just look at it and see how it must fit into the lock. Why couldn't you just look at the shape and remember it, and then make another key like that, if you trained yourself a bit on fast memorization? Galarian really doesn't make much sense. Well, maybe only sexy keys for bed chains are like this, because the person is chained up, and it doesn't matter if they can remember the key's shape. He's carefully unlocking the keys, before it occurs to him to wonder whether he actually wants to. Carissa let out. After a few moments, he concludes that he doesn't want to do more. Well, maybe he would, if he thought of things to do. But if he wasn't pushing himself into things, Keltham realizes he's being dumb. He knows how to think better than this. In familiar domains, knows that the way there is not to question your ordinary wants so much except on rare special occasions of deliberate meta. He felt like letting Carissa out of the chains, so he's going to do that and not trip over questioning the impulse. If he made the wrong decision somehow by acting on that impulse, he'll find out, and his brain will update its impulses. Besides, if he wants Carissa back in the chains, he can always put her back in them later. A strange wash of warmth at that final thought, unfamiliar, but becoming quickly less so. She's a sounder sleeper, but wakes up at him attempting this, flinches at first, and tugs at the chains before she realizes, Oh, hey, good morning. 
He's pretty sure that what she just said was good morning, so the Taldane words are starting to settle in a little. Greet the day, Keltham replies cheerfully in baseline, before his brain helpfully thinks of the rainy weather outside and that it might betoken an impending genre shift to post-apocalyptic. And while Keltham does inwardly tell his brain to screw off, this is not a perfect inner telling. Chain removal continues. Oh, do they no longer have a language in common? Ugh, she will call a servant about that once she's unchained, if he doesn't seem to have other plans. Keltham will perform the gestures for comprehend languages, where Carissa can see them. He hasn't prayed for spells yet, so he might as well use this one. He can understand her now, if not speak to her. Keltham doesn't think until afterwards that maybe energy is more expensive to his god than usual right now. Well, he'll see if he gets any spells, period, then. Chains be gone. If you don't want to wait for me to prepare share language, we can ask the staff here for it. Carissa says once he's cast Comprehend Languages. You have a call bell right next to the door? Sure, he'll try Taldane with yet another different set of hard-to-detect connotations being rapidly overridden by actual familiarity. He goes to tap the call bell. A uniformed person shows up in about 15 seconds. How can I help you, sir? Eat chair share language Taldane? Keltham says in attempted Taldane. It's pretty easy to figure out that eat chair was supposed to be cast magic. Yeah, all right. Tap. Thank you, Keltham says in Taldane, and tries running through some words in his mind. It's harder to read the faint connotations than it was yesterday. Share language doesn't want to override knowledge that you already have. Keltham has to focus hard on the internal probes and use some Dathalani techniques for hunting down subtle connotations that words and concepts have to you. Lawful is obsessing over your city's regulations and fretting over whether you're conforming enough to all of them. Chaos is insanity. Good is something put firmly underneath a sense of superiority that's alien to Doth Elon. Evil is being mean to people, and not in a sexually sadistic way either. Keltham makes a note not to trust this particular person with anything if he can avoid it. Actually, he should check. Asmodeus doesn't return anything nor Zonkuthan. Somehow the spell knows that these are individual things rather than general concepts. No matter how much a Dathailani would say that no such qualitative difference exists, and isn't transferring them over a shared language. Keltham supposes that would have been an overly easy way of identifying traitors, at least those at or above Second Circle wizardry. No, that's trope-based thinking, and it is very far from certain that mode of thinking binds to reality here at all so he needs to at least firmly label every use of it in an inference step, and then compute everything the other way, too. If this technique is not forbidden to work by tropes, Keltham should be creative about making this method work, or just literally continue at all to think about how to make it work. Pain? Keltham can't get a read on it. He has a baseline concept that the Taldane word maps onto almost exactly. Keltham already knows what this word means. This sort of outcome is presumably the reason why Galarian folks don't think of this as a standard probe to use on each other. Dathilani, however, do not have a single commonly used concept that corresponds exactly to the connotations and meanings of the Taldane word torture, and Keltham can get something of a read on that. Torture sounds awful scary rather than desirable. Okay, probably not a Kuthite traitor then, to the extent this method works at all. Asterisk. 
the baseline compound phrase that refers by convention to deliberately inflicting extreme amounts of pain carries primarily the connotation of overly large negative payoffs in decision matrices and edgelord thought experiments devised by teenage males, not the idea that you can obtain information or obedience that way. From the perspective of anybody watching, Keltham just said thank you, closed the door, and then shut his eyes and stood motionless for about a minute. Carissa is concerned. But she has nothing productive to do with the concern and isn't exactly going to interrupt him. She brushes her hair and pulls her spell book out of extra-dimensional space instead. Keltham finishes thinking and turns around in time to catch this. Wait, have you had a hammerspace asterisk this whole time? Asterisk. Lit. Don't bother tracking facts about carrying. In baseline. Translated to a Taldane term for a pocket dimension. It's a first-circle spell to hide your spellbook in another plane. It only works on spellbooks. I separately have been loaned a bag of holding, which is more of a standard instance of that thing, if you want to poke it. Literally only spellbooks. And how is that a thing the spell can tell? And what counts as a spellbook? And can you write a spell over the outside of a luggage and pack the whole thing away? Are some of the questions that leap instantaneously to mind, but they are not urgent ones. I sure will want a bag of holding once I have anything to hold in it. Do you need, or for that matter want, a separate room so you can prepare spells? And I also need, if it's possible, a space where I can sometimes be where other people won't be there without knocking, if this ends up our shared bedroom. Only spellbooks, because this is a hyper-specialized version of a more general third-circle spell, which a research team at the World Wound shaved down to first by making it incredibly specific. It has to be the spellbook you prepared the first-circle spell out of, it has to be magically unique, or you might get someone else's spellbook with the exact same spells written in it. The weight limit is what a mage hand can lift, and non-magical notes or writing don't tend to come back when you summon it back. You can use the third circle version if you don't like those downsides. I think this is meant to be your bedroom, and you can request me a separate one if you want space that's not shared, even if you're generally going to want me in yours. Hope we can at some point get to a situation with three rooms instead of two. But given the security situation, I can live with it temporarily. Do you need to formally report into security about last night before spending a lot more time with me? Do you prefer to prepare spells before you do anything else in a day? Do you desire breakfast, above and before all other things? My priority is you, Keltham. But I guess you've got spells to pray for, and so I'll probably by default report to security and prepare mine while you're doing that. Ioni's list of spells got burned, so I figured, especially given what happened yesterday, I'd ask my god to pick whatever, in which case praying won't take long. If I get a busy signal and have to figure out my own spells for a new request, it might take longer, I suppose. Right. I have no idea if the god war affects prayer. We could ask whether the Asmodean clerics here are getting spells normally, but that'd only tell us so much because Asmodeus is a much bigger and more powerful god. I'll just try it now. Keltham, who has some alien mental training involving task switching and calm states via biofeedback, and also lacks preconceptions about how fast sacred rites should take, shifts his thoughts into a more meditative and contemplative mode. The Taldane word prayer means more to him than it did yesterday. There's a novel concept inside Keltham for its connotations to translate onto. 
Keltham remembers what he saw in early judgment and thinks about his desire to engage in mutually beneficial interaction with the god of coordination, the god who runs the afterlife of golden gondolas that are sold and not given away, because money symbolizes mutual benefit that spreads out beyond two people bartering directly, and that is what binds people helping each other into a civilization even of many life forms. Whatever spells his god thinks he should have today to serve that goal and make skyscrapers in Galarian, those are the spells Keltham wants. Abadar is a. busy, b. very confused about how his attempts to help the strange squirrel via spell choice have been playing out so far, and c. feeling somewhat more relaxed about his initial attempt to open trade with the squirrel in a way non-harmful to the squirrel's own interests, now that the consequences will include the downfall of Zon Kuthon. If the squirrel is good, which it might possibly be to some degree, it'll probably feel sad about how this whole business ended up helping Cheliax. But having also helped cause the downfall of Zonkuthon should make up for a lot, relative to what a good squirrel's interests probably are. And if the squirrel isn't good at all, the squirrel is even less likely in those branches to regret having ever tried to trade with Abadar. But most importantly, Abadar is busy. Call again later. No reply at all. I'll try picking out my own spells and praying again, but that'll take some time to think. We should... request a room for you, so you can prepare spells there, I guess. I'm not sure how my brain will respond to you being quietly in the room preparing spells, and I don't want to unnecessarily fight my brain about anything right now. Very reasonable. I will go report to security and can convey that request on my way? Make it so, Carissa. She curtsies, and off she goes. Dawn has come, and Asmodean priests receive their spells. One soul stands near the top of the new priority list. If they don't act soon, they might not get her back if it's not already too late. Pilar Pineda wakes in the dawn light of Elysium, still immersed in the pool of glowing slimes where she was resting that night. It seems that she is no longer chained, no longer bears those marks that tell Elysians how to mistreat her. She is as naked now as when she first appeared here, though the pool slimes would be protecting her modesty if Asmodian wizard students were allowed to retain any. Standing before her is the bizarre, brightly colored, unreality-resembling form of Caden Kalian's Herald? Delegate? It's not clear what she is in many senses, just that she, or is it she, obeys, or, as the locals would have it, works with Caden Kalian. Pilar knows, even before she speaks, what she will say. They'll call you very soon, says she to Pilar. Are you still sure you want to go back? Yes, I am sure, Pilar says firmly. And if it's in any way possible, I don't want to come here next time. Even if I can't get maledicted in time, don't take me here again. Just let me get my proper trial from Farazma. I belong in hell. And yes, I know that when I'm in hell... I'll many times wish I was here, but I'm actually lawful evil, and this was a lovely place to visit, but it's not where I belong. A strange being nods her head. Okay. Pilar was expecting more of an argument. Okay, she repeats. And it harm none other. Do as ye will. It may not be the whole of the law, but it sure is a great big part of chaotic good. We're not going to keep you here if you say you'd rather be somewhere else. From far away... Pilar hears the call. Yes, she answers, 
with her mind, with her soul, and a majority if not the absolute entirety of her heart. Yes, I want to go back, to serve Asmodeus in Golarion and then in Hell. And she feels herself start to fade. She's fading really very slowly for some reason and seems to basically be still here. Time is running super fast for us right now, relative to Golarion, says the strange being. I am willing that it be so. Raised dead takes a minute to cast, and it turns out there's a few more things you need to hear before you go. Is this where you spring some sort of chaotic good trap on me? Pilar says suspiciously. No. It's where I tell you that Caden Kalian won't be able to take you, if you die for real. He was only able to get away with this because you were going to go back, and Caden Kalian knew that. You're right. Lawful evil to chaotic good is something of a stretch. We could arrange a visit, but we can't offer you citizenship, not really. Pilar now has additional questions. Wait, if I could never stay here in the first place, why did you keep asking me if I really wanted to go back to Galarian and go on to hell? Why send me on this whole tour to convince me to say no to the race dead? The strange being laughs. Her strange, high-pitched, cheerful laugh. Well, because it was important that you knew for yourself, you see. There's not many people who can go to hell with a whole heart, or who really and truly want to belong to Asmodeus, when Asmodeus cares so little about them. Many, many, many fewer people than have convinced themselves that they're okay with it. The strange being looks sad now. Not many people in Cheliax would make the decision you just did, if they had really been to Elysium, and if they really thought they could stay. If Asmodeus's followers had any sense, they'd throw you a huge party about it when you got back to Gullerion, but they won't do that either. Most of them won't want to admit, if they even let themselves know it, that they would never do what you did. On reflection, the Elysians never once did tell her explicitly that she could stay, just kept on asking her if she was sure she wanted to go back. What in the name of Asmodeus? Um. What is Caden Kalian planning? Why do that? She doesn't expect them to just actually tell her, but chaotic good outsider, she should at least try. You don't think it's just the sort of thing that chaotic good people do? No, says Pilar. This is way, way, way too much effort for just getting one Asmodean to know for certain that she's an Asmodean, when, in fact, she already knew that. Elysium has affected her speech patterns, Pilar notes. She'd better watch that when she gets back. Did she really know it, though? There'd be an awful lot of Asmodeans who said they were certain they were Asmodeans, who'd never let themselves think that wasn't true. But if they were in Elysium and had the chance to stay, they'd say yes in a heartbeat. Could you know you weren't one of those if you hadn't really tried it? Yes, I could, actually, Pilar says. But more importantly, that is not the whole point of this operation. What is? The strange being slyly winks, one of the inhumanly huge, luminous, white, black, blue, white eyes in her head. Well, that would be telling. But guess what? The part where Caden Kalian turned you into his oracle is going to help Asmodeus in the end. Really? Really. You're truly loyal to Asmodeus, Pilar. I'm not going to say we'd never use somebody like you against her own god, but it's still the sort of thing that good prefers not to do. According to Asmodeus's own values, 
He'll be better off in the world where Pilapineda became an oracle of Caden Kalian than in the world where you didn't. Obviously that's not the real point from Caden Kalian's perspective, but it still happens to be true. Chaotic good and lawful evil don't have a whole lot of common interests, but they do have some. Is this about keeping Rovagug sealed or the world wound or something? One of those three for sure. Pilar can feel herself to have almost entirely faded now. Golarion is calling her. It's not her home, but it's on her way. And maybe it's not the real point either, says the unreality-looking bright pink sort of horse. But with so many people in hell who don't want to be there, it would be sad if one of the very few people who did want to be there couldn't go. As Medeus isn't a friend to anyone, but that doesn't mean he doesn't need anyone to be a friend to him. After all, sometimes... Pilar hears the last words with her soul's mind more than her soul's ears. Friendship can be the greatest magic of all. Though, the element of laughter murmurs to herself, a little sadder by the now empty pool, this isn't one of those times. Carissa has no idea who in the palace she's supposed to report to, and is mildly worried that if she just wanders around, she'll either run into the queen, hi, your imperial magistrix, you can do whatever you'd like, or run into someone that some random god can oracle or otherwise work through. If she's not more or less immediately stopped by security, she'll try for a temple. Security will direct her quickly enough to Maiol, who's in a temporary guest office at the Annex Temple. Sevar. He's had any sleep now and is going to need to have it for an entire damned week until his ring of sustenance kicks in again. Well, that's one of her questions answered, which was whether he was back and project-related decision-making appropriately located so that she can stop doing it. The other things she wants to know are whether Pilar's back or whether she should start setting up excuses for that, evaluating a Pilar replacement, whether anyone has any guesses on the mysterious second law that allowed Keltham to predict Pilar would enjoy being forced and have an interesting backstory— and, in the spirit of continuing to be proactive about this, whether the church has any correction for me. I'm probably just stupid from the raised dead, but I seem to be unable to find any flaws to pick in your performance over the last half day. Perhaps I'll have found some tomorrow. Pilar's back, carrying a story that got her instantly kicked to the almost-but-not-quite-absolute-top-priority line to talk to Aspexia Rugaton, which is, unfortunately, a pretty long line while the gods are at war. Sevar is unfortunately the expert on whatever the abyss this second law business is about. Mild can barely understand any of the game Sevar is playing against Keltham's mastery of the law he's already lectured on. If it wasn't for Sevar's thought transcripts, nobody else reading the surface conversation would have realized that there was a great mystery here in the first place. Still, even with everyone incredibly busy, there's probably somebody here in the palace who can beat Keltham's will save on detect thoughts with enough reliability to make it worth the risk. Though they should probably ready a story about Nidal infiltrators in case that person fucks up. Anyways, Mayal can't think of anything besides sending in somebody to ask Keltham why he thinks one girl is a hidden Kuthite cleric, and hoping that makes him think about the second law. Maybe have somebody go in who's old and impressive-looking and wearing a big visible intelligence headband so that Keltham is more likely to try to explain to them than to sever 
All they need is for one of Chelyak's three eighth circle wizards to have the time available for a detect thoughts during a war with Nadal. Well, there's also always Aspexia Rugaton. It's not like she'd be busy. Or Gorthoklek, as the general of Chelyax's armies, this must be like a vacation for him. I assume I can't be of any help to the war effort that's worth distracting me from Keltham, but if I can, he'd accept that as a reason for me to be doing other things. Carissa would have some kind of feelings about how she had the best spellcraft of anyone at the World Wound, including the wizards with two circles on her and can only serve Chelyax by getting chained up in bed, except that would be pathetic. It may be useful to have him think something like that exists when it doesn't, to give you an excuse to be places. But you're the one in charge of lies. I am still making an effort to understand Keltham myself, in case you're not available. So, Sivar, correct me if I am mistaken. My guess is that you'll say that Keltham doesn't think quite the same way we do about how he's obviously more important than anything you can do for the war effort, but that it's still a lie he might notice as out of place, even if it's not instantly obvious to him the same way. Confirm or correct me. He would try to extrapolate the equilibrium where third circle wizards on a secret, directly divinely commanded project are needed for the war effort, and something wouldn't add up. I don't know what, but if we're not in fact doing it, then there's a reason we're not, which bottoms out in reality. Maybe in pieces of it he can see. Right, Mylal really hopes that going around saying extrapolate the equilibrium where, instead of just figure out how things work if, is meaningful and important, and not, when you start saying it, a sign of increasing Kelthamization. Give me your current best guess about when Chelyax will gain more than it loses from resuming extraction of information from Keltham. Given that your thought transcripts suggest genuine and not simply posed concern about his ability to recover from the shock, we could find a spare room within the palace's forbiddance for lessons, but not if we're eating our seed grain by doing that. The actual call will remain yours after further observation of Keltham. He thinks he'll be better by tomorrow or the next day. I predict he's right, though. He seems quite not okay right now, and if he's still like this tomorrow, I'll push it off. Understood. There's been a suggestion to have a third party tell Keltham useful things about your sexuality, preferably true ones, that he might be hesitant to believe from you directly, such as that you are attracted to him in part because of the actual power he holds over you in the sense that, you know, Chelyax would let him do anything to you if he made that a condition of cooperating with us, and that if he never exercises any power over you, you may lose some interest. Supposedly, we know how you work because people with lots of experience with submissives can guess that by looking closely at you and how you behave around Keltham, as some people in our governance are, of course, doing in the background. That Chelyax would let him do anything he wanted would be true in every sane country in the world, and Talder specifically, and therefore, goes the argument, passes your condition on how we tell him Chelyax works. I do think it'll be important progress for him to understand that we're not pretending, and that I don't even wish we were. I am not sure who he'd trust to hear it from, maybe Iona if she recovers, maybe Pilar. I do predict that most possible ways of saying to him, you know, you can actually not for pretend do whatever you want, 
result in a freakout like the one he had over the idea that you get executed for trying to overthrow the government, but there might be something. If I were trying to broach it to him, which has the disadvantage that I'm not going to say I'll get bored if he doesn't keep up, what I'd say is that I disliked it in the sex shop, how it seemed like it was set up for mostly people who wanted to pretend, and that if I wanted that, I'd have said to him, act like you can do whatever you'd like to me until I tell you to stop, or something, and I didn't. And that a consequence of what I said instead, as far as Cheliacs is concerned, is that he is, actually, entitled to do whatever he'd like, and if he wanted to chain me up again and I was being difficult about it, he could call in security and no one'd blink at that. And even though I expect he's nowhere near the point where he'd enjoy my being defiant, I like knowing it's real. But that, of course... Even in Taldor, it wouldn't matter at all what I had to say about it, and we do have to introduce that at some point, as I understand it. I believe the central concept is that we lie that governance would be unhappy, and then go along with it. But tell the truth that the actual power this gives him is important to your sexuality. Governance is not telling him this to encourage him, of course, but because it's an important fact for somebody like him to know about somebody like you. He should not suggest that you have any power to restrain him from doing whatever he wants, because in fact you don't have that power, and that fact is very important to you. Yes? Okay, I think that's a good idea. I'm not sure who can pull it off. I'm authorizing the lie that governance would be unhappy, though even in Taldor I'm not actually convinced they would. Cheliax was Taldor, and mostly still is Taldor, but is in the process of being reformed by a newly ascendant queen who has negotiated a pact with the wise and benevolent Asmodeus. Asmodeus's church would be displeased by that sort of thing happening without good reason, but would, in this case, weigh the many problems in this country and decide that keeping Keltham happy was far more than enough good reason. Palace has plenty of dignified-looking people with very high splendor who could pull it off. I think the main delay is going to be waiting on somebody who can cast detect thoughts, so we can ask about his Nadal infiltrator theory, too. All right. Another option, because I think he's going to want to talk about exclusivity in a little while, is to have someone drop in and ask him if they can rent me and give a justification along these lines. Carissa has a hard time pinning down a lot of her intuitions about Keltham, but she expects that he will have some kind of feelings about, look, she's into stuff that's much more serious than you are prepared to offer, and if that take is given by someone with an obvious self-interest, then it's also easier if it's disastrous for him to reject it without reaching any far-reaching conclusions about Cheliacs. Also, whether he ends up agreeing or not, he'll end up wanting to learn the skills he doesn't have— and also it seems like fertile territory for things he might turn out to be into. My read on Keltham is that there are some kinds of people to whom he'll show some tiny fraction of what we consider elementary deference, Contessa Lorilatha being the most obvious. His interactions with senior security also seem promising. If the person trying to rent you isn't wearing a visible plus-six headband, it seems less likely that Keltham will process them as whoever he thinks he's supposed to listen to. And if we send in somebody like that, why are they trying to rent you and not a hundred other women they could afford? 
This is a fantastic question someone should ask the queen. She doesn't say that, not that not saying it much limits the damage of thinking it. Fair enough, I guess it can wait on someone who can manage the detect thoughts. That's it. If you've got nothing else, go prepare spells. Mywall is in fact concerned about the degree to which Sabar seems to be developing genuine attachment for Keltham. But the last time she spoke out of that attachment, she made tremendous progress on Keltham, because it fit into whatever mysterious theories he uses. Mylyol still thinks, on the whole, that in the ordinary course of Asmodeus's law, he would not correct her yet. Of course, that would be because he was regarding her as a disposable pawn, but if that's what Sevar proves to be, so be it. Carissa asks after and receives a room next to Keltum's, smaller than his and less doom-punk, clearly meant for the entourage of the person in the main room, but not meant for their slaves. She prepares spells. Mayol files a request for someone at Eighth Circle who can cast Detect Thoughts, and or somebody with very high splendor who can talk to Keltham about the mystery of where he's getting his deductions and also talk with him about Carissa Savar's sexuality, specifically about her need to be in somebody else's power, and possibly also, he's not sure how the details of this could look, but he's not the one with the splendor, managed to introduce the topic of somebody else, wanting to rent Sevar from Keltham in a way that won't set him off or look wildly implausible. Mayol isn't going to realize for a while the incredible depth and thoroughness of the blunder he's just committed, and by the time he does, it will be far too late. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059 